This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. Today's conversation with Karen Krishnan, we get into all things specific about the gut microbiome. Why does gut health matter with disease? Why or how does disease even start in the gut? How does brain function and gut microbiome or how does the brain gut access even relate to each other? And then how does skin health, how is it affected by the gut? In this conversation, we get into all the nuance, why some probiotics are in fridges and why some are not. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that often starts with the carnivore cures all meat elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Karen Krishnan. I had him on our channel a couple years ago, and we did this long series about everything that's related to the gut because I focus on gut health. And I just wanted to know how every nuance of the gut impacts other parts of the body and other illnesses. And so we went into a lot of detail. I'll link to that episode. But it's been a couple years that we've used Kieran's products, the microbiome lab products on gut function and on our clients and our patients. And we have seen tremendous results. Not everyone improves with them. And we talk about that nuance in this conversation that I tried to be a lot more specific with Kieran with certain questions that had remained from our past conversation. And then a lot more that I've learned along the way, especially with water damage buildings, fungal overgrowth. How does bacteria relate to fungus? Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Karen. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a couple years since I've had you on my podcast. It's been a while, so I'm super excited. The Megaspore, that is one of the most common or popular, I should say, uh, supplements that we still sell, even though I don't even share too much about it, but I still talk about gut function. If you can introduce yourself for the people that have not watched our previous interview. Yeah, well, thanks for having me again. Uh, I loved our conversation last time, and and I love the work you do and all the information you put out. So it's uh, it's exciting to to get an opportunity to do this. For the people that aren't familiar, I'm my background is as a research microbiologist, and uh, I ended up in the world of supplements and nutrition just because purely of need. I was doing a lot of research work, clinical research in particular, uh, because my focus has always been on clinical microbiology. And um, what I what I started to realize is there's a lot of 
issues with the way probiotics are formulated in the in the space and um, the approach to probiotics. So I wanted to create something new, uh, something with with more innovation and better science behind it. And hence, uh, the Megaspore product got born and 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 the company Microbiome Labs. And uh, since then, uh, you know, we've actually developed I think something like twenty six different products to intervene in digestive issues and uh, and and help practitioners and and people gain a better control of their health and wellness. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a really uh, fun and exciting journey. Yeah, and I'll ask more about the spore probiotics just to differentiate between other ones. But were, was Microbiome Labs the very first spore probiotic? So it was the first multi-spore probiotic okay. Okay. Uh, on the market at that time. That was one product that had one spore in it, okay. um, and and in fact, they didn't really talk about the spore. They didn't really, um, you know really accentuate what was unique about spores and so on. Um, and it was a single spore product. Now, when we looked at that, we said, okay, well, that's good. That's that's an improvement over the, the majority of, of probiotics that are out there that aren't really doing a whole lot in your system. But do you ever find in, in interactions in nature, right? Do you ever find a single spore all by itself? You don't. And they typically work in a consortium. Many of these spores kind of support each other's function synergistically in the system. So we wanted to create that innovation of a multi-spore uh, consortium product. Okay, makes sense. I wanted to reel it back a little bit. So Hippocrates obviously says all disease starts in the gut. If you were to give a summary of why does why did he even say that? What is it about disease in the gut? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of connection, of course, to disease and the gut. But let's let's break it down to three things, right? If we can look at three things that the gut is primarily responsible for, that when not functioning properly can lead to disease, right? So number one is uh, absorption and assimilation of nutrients, right? Our digestion is completely dependent on the function of the gut and thereby the function of the microbes in the gut, right? And the microbes really dictate how the gut functions in large part. So if we can't break down and assimilate our nutrients, we're going to be nutrient deficient and that nutrition de- nutrient deficiency is going to lead to disease states. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is the immune system. You know, 75, 80% of all your immune tissue is in your gut, in your digestive system. Um, all of that gut associated lymphoid tissue. So a lot in terms of how your immune system functions and sees the world around you and tolerates things or doesn't tolerate things, responds to things appropriately, doesn't respond to things appropriately. A lot of that is dictated by how your gut functions. So if your gut is dysfunctional, your immune system is automatically going to be dysfunctional, right? So, and a dysfunctional immune system is at the root of many conditions. So if you think about things like asthma, allergies, you know, things like autoimmune conditions, all of these are driven by a dysfunctional immune system, including people that chronically get sick and ill with viral and bacterial infections and so on. So that's number two. So first one is the, the breakdown and assimilation of nutrients. So you don't end up nutrient deficient. The second one is a function of your immune system alone. And then of course, the third one is when you have a dysfunctional gut, you end up with something called leaky gut. And leaky gut creates the biggest source of chronic low-grade inflammation in the body. So now you've got massive amounts of inflammation throughout the body, and inflammation is the is the soup in which most chronic diseases are developed. Right? Uh, there was a, uh, a, a publication in the uh, Frontiers of Immunology, which is a journal, uh, peer-reviewed uh, index journal. This publication in 2015 showed through this analysis of lots of research that 
leakiness in the gut and the resulting chronic low-grade inflammation was the number one cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. It was a number one driver of disease, right? So just if you think about those three things alone, if your gut and uh, and digestion is dysfunctional, you're susceptible to all three of those things, and that becomes the biggest source of chronic disease. And would you say that leaky gut is primarily associated to the foods that we're eating that are causing the leakiness? Um, so it's the foods and the things that come in with the foods, right? Our environment as well, our overuse of antibiotics. I mean, if you think about you're eating, if you're eating foods that are laden with pesticides and herbicides, right? Those foods are going to absolutely destroy your microbiome because those pesticides and herbicides are really strong antimicrobials. And, and some of those pesticides are even worse than antimicrobials like glyphosate, for example, because those pesticides selectively kill good bacteria and actually proliferate pathogens because some pathogens in the gut have actually worked out ways of, of, of resisting the effect of the pesticides. So the, so as you're getting these small doses of pesticides every single day, what you're doing is creating an ecosystem where the pathogens proliferate. And that becomes a foundation of leaky gut, right? So, um, and then of course, the environment were full of microplastics and, and toxins. And, uh, and of course, you know, we're, we're, we have less exposure to the microbial environment that we used to. We live in sterile environments. We over sterilize things around us. A lot of personal care products we use, all of those things can have a huge impact. But what you put in your system uh, in, in terms of food has a huge, huge impact on whether or not you develop leaky gut. Yeah, it was fascinating. I went to one of your talks and then you had mentioned that the digestive process, it's like an open front to bottom. And yeah. that's the one place we really allow the external to come in and how that whole barrier needs to be really strong and healthy. Otherwise we can get pretty sick. And that- yeah, it, in, in fact, that's the, so the intestinal barrier is the true separation from what is truly inside your body versus outside your body, right? We think that when we swallow something that it's inside the body, well, your, since your digestive tract, like you said, is a tube open on both ends, things can actually pass through and never in, enter the circulation. Um, but it's a digest, it's a lining of the intestine that really separates what's truly inside and outside of your body. So if you look at the lining of your intestine, you've got this tube that your intestine is, that open space, that tube is still considered outside the body. Once it moves through the walls of the intestine into circulation, that's when it's truly inside the body. And what moves through the walls and at what rate is dictated by the microbes and the health of that digestive system. If that system is broken down and not functioning properly, that's when it becomes leaky and and things that shouldn't be going through are allowed to go through. Right. And then the reason why it's a little bit easy to go through naturally is so that nutrients can easily get absorbed, correct? That's exactly right. So the intestine is a complicated structure because it has to be selectively permeable. Right. Unlike the skin, for example, the skin acts like a true barrier, right? It's got multiple layers of cells, dead cells, live cells, mucosa, all of these different structures. And the skin is acting as a two-way barrier to prevent moisture and things from leaking out, from evaporating out, and then toxins and pathogens and often going in, right? But the but the intestines are different because it has to allow lots of things through. It has to allow big molecules through, small molecules through. It has to allow, you know, um, you know, nutrients like uh like magnesium, zinc and all to pass through without any hindrance and then bigger uh, molecules like proteins and and so on and flavonoids and all to get through. 
but it also then has to shut down when pathogens and toxins and viruses and all are trying to make its way through. All the while, with all of these things entering in, the immune system has to be able to detect what's friend and foe. Right, The immune system cannot be attacking everything that comes through, and it also should be attacking a certain number of things. So how does the immune system make those distinctions of, hey, this is food, I'm not going to attack this, or hey, this is a pathogen, I am going to attack this. A lot of that understanding that the immune system has comes from the interaction with the microbes at the topmost layer of your intestinal walls. The microbes act as the eyes and ears of the immune system to understand the world around you. And then the microbes will help the immune system understand that, hey, this is food, don't attack it. Uh, Or this is a pathogen, this is a toxin, this is something you really need to pay attention to, right? So when you start creating a dysbiosis of that of that microbial environment and you stop um, stop that communication between the microbes and the immune system, that's when you start to develop all these sensitivities and all these things that people tend to experience uh, as they navigate the world. Hey, guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock for nine months. It was out of print and used prices were up to three hundred dollars. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. One of the ways that the microbes can become less communicative or that thing sort of breaks down is... So glyphosate could be one, some of the foods or the things that come in with our food, such as pesticides. Are there any other ways that maybe the microbes aren't as strong in our gut? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about uh, foods that elicit inflammation in your in the lining of your gut, right? So if your immune system is going to start attacking things that are coming in, that inflammation is going to disrupt the microbial environment. If you think about sugars, you know, just like these these uh, horrific uh you know foods that are that are heavily processed and tend to have really high glycemic response or have lots of artificial colors and flavorings and compounds like that that our microbiome is not actually designed to digest will have will will create a selection pressure for certain dysfunctional microbes that may be able to utilize that better Right. So this is why a lot of these are artificial sweeteners like sucralose, for example, that may not have a glycemic response, but actually leads to metabolic syndrome because it actually attenuates and disrupts the microbiome because the microbiome wants to break things down. And you're going to select for dysfunctional microbes that adapt the ability to break that down, which also destroys the communication with the immune system. They're the opportunistic microbes in your system are really good at looking for the right opportunity to proliferate. And when they proliferate, the last thing they want to do is communicate with the immune system because they don't want to bring attention to themselves. Your commensal bacteria really love communicating with the immune system because they have a good working relationship. The immune system recognizes them as self, doesn't attack them, and then can allow that communication so that the commensals can tell the immune system what to attack and what not to attack. The opportunistic microbes that get selected for when you bring in all of these uh, nutrients that, that are non-nutrients that create inflammation, that create an unusual selection pressure in the body, when they proliferate, they stop the communication with the immune system and you get all of these dysfunctions that arise because of that. And so that's why 
it's beneficial to take certain foods that may have good species or take probiotics? Is that I'm just trying to lay out the process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you could you could think about certain fermented foods or, you know, I mean, in, in your world, in the in the carnivore world, there's lots of uh, traditional fermented meats as well, right? So when you look at a fermented meat, what is that? Well, that is something where you've got a Pediococcus acetolactici as a bacteria, for example, that ferments sausages. Now, they may have been doing that for years to preserve the meat. But that fermentation process creates all of these beautiful nutrients that aren't normally present on the meat that is coming through that then services a huge variety of microbes in the system. So that's one way of getting exposed to it. Probiotics can be really effective. The the Megaspore, for example, is a probiotic that we created as a way to mimic what humans are actually supposed to be doing, right? We're supposed to be going out in nature and 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 hunting and and gathering foods and things like that right so we're supposed to be in the dirt and we're supposed to be in the outside environment that's where we gain a lot of our nutrients and and through that process we gain exposure to these bacteria modern humans simply don't do that right we just go to the grocery store or order online and things are coming to our doorstep and so we lose that that uh, relationship with the microbes in the environment which is critical to continuing to enhance and support the microbiome. And and studies have shown that people that live in rural areas that engage more with the environment have more diversified microbiomes, have healthier, more resilient microbiomes than people that live in urban areas that are normally sterilized and they get very little encountering with the environment. So probiotics can be absolutely helpful, but it should be one that, that mimics what we're supposed to do in nature. You mentioned earlier the spore probiotics, and then we see a lot at the grocery store. So the one of the biggest things we get as practitioners is there are probiotics at the grocery store that are half the cost of Megaspore. Some of them are refrigerated. How do we know when they get shipped out or the pricing? I'll just pick it up at the grocery store. And they talk about some of them have even more billions of strains or amounts than the one in Megaspore. And it's the biggest struggle we always deal with when it comes to probiotics. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's been the big one of the key misconceptions that we came out to try to to combat, right? This that that effective probiotic is one that has more strains and more CFU counts, uh, and then of course the refrigerated section is a whole other crazy idea. Because when I first started working in probiotics, I, I would approach these stores as a as a microbiologist, so looking at it from a science perspective, and I'd go, okay, what are your best probiotics in the store? And they'd always point to the ones in the refrigerator. And my first question is, why are they in the refrigerator, right? And they would say, well, because you need a live culture. That's what makes them effective. And so you have to keep them refrigerated so they stay alive. And then my next question would be, well, okay, so if they sat on shelf, at room temperature, 70 degrees, they wouldn't be alive. They said, no, they'll they'll die off on the shelf. That's why you have to keep them refrigerated. So if you buy them, take them home quickly and put them in a refrigerator, right? And I'm like, okay. So if they can't sit on the shelf at 70 degrees, it's 98.6 degrees in the body. And the pH in the stomach is like 1.3, 1.4, which can melt your fingertips off. How are these dainty little bacteria going to survive that, right? And they never had an answer for it. Um, and so that was one of the like, things that I'm going, okay, there may be some nonsense here. Then you start digging into the industry and figuring out why they started doing this refrigeration thing to begin with when it doesn't make scientific sense from a physiological standpoint. The reason is this, right? It's all because of lawyers, 
And so here's what happened, right? So in the in the mid to late 90s, um, the world of probiotics started to scale. So then companies like any megalomaniacal uh, industry would start to go more is better, right? So if my if my competitor has 10 strains and, and 10 billion CFUs, I'm going to compete with that competitor by going 15 strains and 15 billion CFUs because the psychic uh, the psyche of the consumer is more is better. This must be more potent, more powerful, right? And so that's how I'm gonna I'm gonna position my product. However, what some class action lawyers started to do is they started to grab these products off the shelf that say 15 billion CFUs. They'll send them to a lab to test. And then in the capsule, it would show there'd be a fraction of that because these strains all died off sitting there, right? Because they're not designed to be outside of the body in capsules. They don't have the resilience to be able to do that. So then companies started getting sued for false advertising that, hey, you're claiming 15 billion in the label. I tested the capsule, there's only 1 billion. We're suing you for false advertising across state lines. So now it's a class action lawsuit. So now companies started saying, okay, we're gonna do two things to protect against that. A, we're gonna put five times overage in there. If it says 15 billion, right, we're gonna put almost 100 billion in there. And then we're gonna tell the stores that they have to put it in the, in the refrigerator to stop the dying off of these bacteria. Right. So that's how this whole refrigeration thing came about. It has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with physiology or efficacy. It's purely to stop them from getting sued for false advertising. Right. So so all of that was kind of like, oh, my God, probiotics can be so effective if done correctly. But there's just so much nonsense out there. So that's that's a whole refrigerated multi-strain, multi-billion CFU idea. The other problem I had is that 99% of the probiotics out there is finished products, finished formulations, don't have studies on them, right? And because they don't have studies on them, you actually don't know what they do in the system, right? Probiotics are far more complicated than herbs and compounds and all that, right? Vitamin C, if it is uh, from a molecular structure, vitamin C, you can mix it in almost anything and it's going to function like vitamin C does, right? Because it does certain singular things. A probiotic is a living organism with thousands of genes and it makes all of these proteins and has all of this metabolic activity. So its environment changes what it does, right? So you can take a probiotic and put it in environment A versus environment B. It's going to express different genes, different proteins and do different things. It's not going to function the same in two different environments. So when you mix microbes together, it affects how they function. In fact, a lot of them can knock out each other's function. So just throwing this kitchen sink of bacteria together and assuming that each of their individual functions is going to be additive and preserve the efficacy of the, of the formula is completely a leap in science, right? You cannot show, you cannot assume that at all. So unless there is there's a clinical trial on the finished formula, proving that the finished formula is efficacious to the human, that it supports the microbiome in some way, because that's the other thing is like, what do these bacteria do to the microbiome? How does it affect the other microbes in the microbiome? Unless there are clinical studies on that, it's not a probiotic I would take, right? And so you want a probiotic that has clinical trials on the finished formula. That's the only way you actually know what a probiotic takes. You cannot assume that bacteria, when added in different mixes and added in different environments, will do what you think they do because they will change their behavior based on their environment. That's so interesting. So there was a probiotic advocate that 
talked about different strains and what they're known for. So for example, they'll say acromentia when it's low, it's a high indication of weight gain or the uh, ability to gain weight. But we see that it's not always true in our practice. So we'll, sometimes we see it high, sometimes we see it low, but it's that every individual had certain roles and, and maybe that's true in isolation. I'm not sure, but it sounds like what you're saying, which makes sense to me is that you should always test the package or the final product because that's how you'll see the efficacy. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, the, and you have to test it in a variety of people, right? Because as you said, uh, people all have a different mix of microbes in their system. And so if, if you, if you have a clinical trial that has a hundred different people in it, it's basically a hundred different microbiomes. And if the majority of people have a beneficial effect, then you know that, okay, this mix of microbes in my product is adaptable to all different types of microbiomes. If you're seeing efficacy in 5% of people, then you then you can start to 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 uh, think that, okay, maybe this mix is only beneficial in people with a certain type of microbiome and not beneficial in other types of microbiome. So one of the things that people really need to understand is that, you know, as humans, all of us, everyone that's listening right now and everyone that's in on the globe right now are 99.9% similar in our genetics, right? All of us only have a 0.1% difference in our genes. And yet our microbiomes can be as much as 90% different from person to person at the species level. So our ecosystems are unique. And, and how microbes as probiotics interact with our ecosystem becomes a very important aspect of it. That's why some people can take fermented foods and they do great. Some people take fermented foods and it creates all kinds of problems for them and histamine and all this stuff, right? Um, because of their ecosystem is different and it doesn't align with that product and that food. Um, and so that's a really important thing. That's why those clinical trials and all that are really important. Yeah, it's fascinating. So in when we give our clientele, which is mostly carnivore, meat-based or low carb, they generally the population does really well with uh, Megaspore, but then there's a few select people that react to it. And so sometimes we'll get on the low, the HU58, but there's a select few. There was one person that emailed me many years ago and they were so upset because there's one strain in the Megaspore that is histamine inducing, but for the general public, it's fine. Um, but it was just that one person. And would you say it's because they're, like you said, their microbiome is just so differently populated and maybe it's giving them a Herx reaction? What do you think is happening? Because there are many foods that cause a histamine reaction, but that person was very ill off that. And so now it's just something that we're very mindful of when someone is very histamine sensitive, which yeah. there are many in carnivore then we have to be a little bit more cautious just because, but generally speaking, most people do still do well with it. Yeah. So um, it, it's more than likely, I would say 99% certainty that what they were experiencing was a Herxheimer, which is a die-off reaction, right? So one of the awesome things about the spores is their ability to do quorum sensing, their ability to read the microbial environment, find pathogenic organisms, and then start killing them off. Now, in some people, that killing off of the pathogenic organism can create that Herxheimer response. Now, what that individual may have done is because they're histamine intolerant, they may have gone and looked at spores and histamine on Google, right? And then there, there is one study out there on showing a version of bacillus coagulants that is used in uh, that was isolated from fi fermented fish that can produce histamine. Uh, 
right? But that's actually completely different than the coagulants that's in the product here. Okay. Now, the reason why that one can produce histamine is because that strain was selected for its ability to create a specific type of ferment, which as a byproduct of that ferment, you produce histamine, right? But most coagulants don't do that in the system. So what they were experiencing was a die-off reaction. Um, that can be beneficial, actually, because it's an indication of things changing in their system in a positive way, although it, it may feel like crap in the beginning, right? And so in most of those cases, what we do, like you said, we either go with just the HE58 or we go really slow with them on the dosing. You know, we've had some people in our in our clinic in Chicago when we had it, we've had some people go as little as like an eighth of a cap every like two or three days, wow. you know, and then it took them like eight months to build up to half a capsule. Um, and then almost a year to build up to one full capsule. But once they got there, they were doing so much better, right? And they were feeling good and all that. Some people have to go through what naturopaths call that healing crisis, unfortunately, you know, in, in their system. And you can see that as you shift their diet and you shift their lifestyle, they go through these different kinds of yeah, healing crises. Yeah, it's interesting. We do have some people that start with the eighth, but they'll do it every day and they'll have to go very slow. But once they get to the one capsule and then eventually two, uh, there's a huge difference in what they'll tolerate, maybe how their gut feels. So I definitely think it's beneficial. Um, it's just interesting how certain people react. Um, I had a quick question. So sometimes we have people take Megaspore with Restore Flora because Restore Flora has SAC B. Is it not ideal for them to be taken together since the studies show that they're, you know, like you were just saying that some strains can compete with others? Yeah, no, actually, um, the spores in SACB um, align really well okay. together, okay. right? Um, there's some evolutionary evidence for that as well, because in nature, you would actually pick them up, both of them uh, in the same context. So Saccharomyces may be found in uh, in vegetation and things like that. And then the spores is also present in those environments. Um, they don't have antagonistic function at all. Uh, and we've actually done a little bit of work to, to identify that. Uh, they actually function quite well together. One of the strains, so we launched a, a product called Zen Biome mm -hmm. uh, that has this psychobiotic in it, which is a bifidal longum 1714. It does all kinds of amazing things for anxiety, depression, mood disorders, and so on. But that's one of those unique strains that we found when we mix it with other uh, bacteria, it actually kind of knocks out its effect. Uh, so if you mix it with other bifidos and all that, it knocks out its effect. Now, you can take it with the spores. We haven't seen it knock out its effect, but we believe it can reduce the effect if you take it at the same time. Uh, that That is negated if you separate it by like four hours. Wow. Um, you know, so so it's, there are some sensitivities, but sac B and spores go beautifully well together. Nature intended them, I think, to be consumed together. Okay. I have an interesting question. So we have been dealing with a lot of people that suffer from mold illness, from water damage buildings, maybe moldy coffee. Uh, so some of the mycotoxins there. And we are starting to see people that have taken a lot of antibiotics. And over the years, they've taken probiotics, but they have improved even with the elimination diet. But because of this fungal overgrowth, they're not fully improving. So we will still have them do antifungals and then we'll add the probiotics. But if I'm not mistaken, probiotic support, is it all of the microbiome or is it supporting mostly the bacteria? And then how do you repopulate the fungal to be better balanced? 
Yeah. So that's a great question. And and in general, when you look at the microbiome, um, if you have a probiotic that supports diversity in the microbiome, um, then it, it's one that should support the right balance of all microbes, right? So uh, fungus and viruses and all of those things. Now, how do you restore the, the proper fungal biome within your microbiome? Fungus is interesting in the world of the microbiome because the microbiome is predominated by bacteria. Um, there are other versions of microbes in there like fungus, but the predominance are bacteria. And the bacteria decide which fungus gets to stay and which fungus proliferates. Um, so that's that's one of the key ways of doing it is balancing the bacteria, bacterial environment. And then the bacteria allows the fungus to uh, to maintain and, and stabilize the ones that should be there. So candida is a great example of that, right? So there's like almost 150 to 200 different strains of candida that's present in the human system. And candida is quickly overgrown when the bacterial part of the microbiome gets diminished, right? And so candida is opportunistic in that way. So are most funguses in, uh, within the microbiome. They're opportunistic in that when their regulators, which are the bacteria, are diminished, they start to overgrow quickly, right? And fungus is really good at growing fast. And so bringing the bacteria back will regulate the fungus and allow for the right type of fungus to proliferate because there are relationships between bacteria and fungus fungi in the in the system so they they for example share biofilms or they share nutrients right and so the bacteria want certain fungus there uh, that supports their ecosystem uh, but they will uh, fight against the overgrowth and will fight against the dysfunctional uh, fungi as well so normally when you see a fungal issue in the body it's it's because the bacteria are are diminished as well. And they're allowing, that's allowing an uh, opportunistic fungal overgrowth in the system. Okay. And that makes sense because, I mean, I think my logical brain was, wait, what pro fungal biotic are we taking? But in our CFO protocol, we'll do a lot of the antifungals and some of those herbals. And then mm -hmm. afterward we do like Megaspore and we use SACB a lot because that helps a lot with CFO, CFO yes. related. And, and then we'll add some mega IgG to mop up a lot of that. But, and but just my logical brain always wondered, well, how are we supporting that? But it makes sense what you're saying. What about LPS and endotoxins? So some of the water damage buildings, it's not just fungal, but there's also endotoxins there. And there's actinomyces, which is like a blend of fungal and um, bacteria as well. But what's LPS? Uh, how do we support that and endotoxins in the body? Yeah, so uh, LPS is probably the most prolific endotoxin in the body to begin with, right? It's um, it's made by gram-negative bacteria and at least half the bacteria in your gut and in your system. So in your oral cavity and all that are gram-negative. So you're constantly making LPS. You can pick up LPS from the outside environment. You can bring in LPS from contaminated food as well. Um, but a lot of it is made in the gut alone and in the mouth alone. Um, the whole key to LPS is that if it gets trapped in the barrier, the mucosal barrier, then it's totally fine. Your immune system knows how to neutralize it. A lot of your commensal bacteria know how to neutralize it. But if your barriers are leaky, whether it's your you have gingivitis or, or periodontal disease in your gums, so you're, you're bleeding gums a lot, or you have leakiness in the gut, that's when LPS is allowed to leak through and end up in circulation and then wreak havoc in the system, right? Because LPS elicits a massive inflammatory response wherever it goes. It can also interfere with certain receptors. Like, for example, in the brain, when LPS gets there, it interferes with dopamine and serotonin receptors, 
So even if if you're making enough dopamine and serotonin, you can't bind enough of it in the brain in order to utilize your dopamine and serotonin. So it can create lots of havoc. Now, in the digestive tract alone, one of the great ways of binding up LPS is through the immunoglobulins. So the mega IgG, those immunoglobulins do bind LPS, right? So this is a bovine source. It comes from cows. Cows are constantly inundated with uh, with LPS. So they develop a lot of antibodies against it, and we get the benefit of that when we take it as a supplement. So your mucosal layer gets coated with these beautiful immunoglobulins that bind up all the LPS that's being produced. There's also, um, uh, you you can use colostrum. Colostrum will have components in it uh, that will bind um, LPS in the digestive tract alone. Now, inside the body, the ones that have leaked through, uh, inside the body, you can't necessarily go in and sop up LPS. What you need to do is support your immune system because your immune system has a protein called LBP, which is LPS binding protein, which is released by macrophages and dendritic cells. And those cell, the, the, that protein will help bind and neutralize LPS in the system. So then it becomes a, a matter of supporting the immune system. You know, you could do it through simple things like vitamin C and zinc and some of those nutrients. Um, and then reducing inflammation, right? Inflammation is, of course, the big thing that allows the propagation of LPS because uh, the way to think about inflammation in the body, especially if you have lots of different sites of inflammation, is that your immune system gets distracted by all of these inflammatory signals, right? Your immune system only has certain capacity to monitor the entire body. So if you've got 50 sites of inflammation in your in your body, your immune system is completely distracted and LPS can be allowed to float around and trigger more uh, inflammation. If your inflammation is controlled, then your immune system can pay close attention to things like circulating LPS. And neutralize it, right? So, but but uh, immunoglobulins um, and uh, and colostrum can be be really helpful to bind that up in the gut before it makes its way through into circulation. Yeah, we tried colostrum. I mean, I know it's so beneficial. I sometimes take it myself, but a lot of our clients can't take dairy, and so that's why they can't do that. So that's why we lean towards the mega IG just because it's bovine, but. I think I've heard you say a few times, even on our podcast, that you're not the biggest fan of coconut oil for the gut. And people wanted more clarification of what is it about coconut oil that's bad for the gut? So coconut oil has a very unusual fatty acid content, right? There's nothing else in the world that has that kind of fatty acid content. It's got long chain, medium chain, um, short chain triglycerides. Um, a number of those are antimicrobial, so they will kill bacteria. Um, and if you kill bacteria in the, in the gut, you're going to release more LPS because remember, half the bacteria is at least making LPS. So if your gut is leaky, um, what tends to happen is that if you kill more bacteria and you release more LPS, more of that will leak through. Um, the other thing is that because it has such a complex fatty acid profile, you will elicit the production of more of these lipid carriers that go across the lining of the gut to bring the, those fatty acids through. And then those lipid carriers will accidentally grab LPS as well because LPS is a fatty molecule. And so you, for people who don't have a resilient, healthy gut, if they have a leaky gut, coconut can be dramatically uh, an increase in the amount of LPS that ends up in circulation. So, you know, if you think about it this way, this being a unique equatorial food, right? Coconuts only really grow around the equator. So the people that have that have grown up 
or their lineage is from the equator, they tend to have a microbiome that can deal with that kind of unique nutrient uh, density. If you're coming from Norway and your people and your microbiome has never seen a coconut, it's going to be a jarring uh, thing to your system and your system's not going to know how to deal with it. And so there's a little bit of adaptability to that kind of thing. What I always uh, tell people to be careful of is that if your gut is already leaky, right, and you know you've got digestive trouble, you're of European descent, for example, your body is probably not ready or adapted to deal with something as complex and, and unique as coconut, uh, coconut oil. And so, you know, going now and doing coconut oil in everything you do is probably not going to be a good idea is going to be an undue stress on your body. Can you adapt to it? You probably can. As you seal up your gut, right, using the right probiotics and cleaning up your diet and so on, you seal up your gut and then you start using small amounts of coconut oil, or you're better off going to the more, you know, specified MCT, for example, right, that has less of that killing off effect, is absorbed more directly into the system, uh, is utilized better for energy and all that, and it's a cleaner version of it. That's the way I always direct people uh, towards that. But be, people overuse things, right? They go, oh, I hear coconut is good. So I'm going to put it in my coffee. I'm going to swish with it. I'm going to cook everything with it. Everything. Now they've got 50 tablespoons of coconut throughout the day when their system's not ready for it. Okay. So the main reason it's not ideal is if you have some level of gut imbalance or dysbiosis or leaky gut, which most people do nowadays the immune system can accidentally pull some more LPS because coconut can look, the fatty molecules can look more similar so that it's just a higher risk of exacerbating your gut imbalances. Yeah. And, and then I'll also keep in mind that the long chain triglycerides in coconut will, okay. will kill more bacteria, okay, which right, right. release more uh, LPS as well. So not only will you have more LPS in the lumen, part of the intestine, you also have a propensity to accidentally pull more of that in. So that combination of the two things can be problematic for people. There were some people that said the reason you didn't like coconut oil was the saturated fat part of it. And so then people started wondering, so does that mean that you think animal fats are also bad? And I never got to clarify that with you. So is it similar no, I, I think saturated fats on its own is not an issue, right? And of course, there's been this issue of demonizing it as if it's a driver of cholesterol, it's a driver of heart disease and all that. And we now know that that's a myth, right? Um, so saturated fat from, from uh, consuming animals doesn't have the same effect as coconut oil because number one, if you eat a steak, or if you eat a, a few tablespoons of coconut oil, they have a very different amount and content of saturated fat. They also have a very different profile of saturated fat, right? Coconut has a very uh, a varied uh, profile of saturated fat versus what you find in a steak, for example. So, so they're not equivalent. And, and people tend to make these equivalencies in their minds, right? So I would tell almost anyone should be able to eat a steak and be perfectly fine but probably a large percentage of the current population, if they ate a lot of coconut oil, would probably suffer some endotoxemia from it. So they're different sources and different types of fat. And then two questions on, so gut health is so related to skin health. Why? Yeah. And then gut health is also very related to mental health. And why? Yeah, yeah. Um, those are those are both really, really important areas of study. So if you look at the gut-skin axis, there's a, there's a couple of ways of connecting them. One is through the nutrient side as well, right? So we talked about how um, if you don't assimilate and uh, break down and assimilate your nutrients properly, you're not 
uh, providing the body with all the, the building blocks it needs in order to pro function properly. The skin grows from the inside out, right? We think of a lot of things about the skin from the outside in, but the skin really grows from the inside out. The skin is repaired from the inside out, right? So it starts with feeding the skin and skin cells and the skin layers with all the right nutrients and all that it needs from the inside out. So if your gut is dysfunctional, you're going to actually um, um underfeed the skin, the nutrients that it needs, everything from the proteins and the fatty acids and all that. So just think about one thing, for example, ceramides, right? So ceramides are generated in the liver from dietary sources of fat. And then those ceramides are taken to the skin to build a very important ceramide layer that's in the skin. The ceramide layer in the skin is a fatty acid matrix in the skin that holds moisture in, that prevents things from leaking through, that reduces inflammation and all that. If your gut and your liver are aren't functioning properly, you can't absorb and create the ceramides that your skin needs. Now, there you could try to put ceramides from the outside in, but we know that that, does, that functions at a fraction of the ceramides that are generated from the inside, right? So that's true for antioxidants, proteins, amino acids, all of those things. So that's one reason why the gut and the skin are intimately connected. The second reason is immune function. So your, your gut mucosa houses about 75 to 80% of all your immune tissue. So a lot of what your immune system learns in terms of the environment that you're in comes from the mu gut mucosa itself. And so the immune system makes decisions on what is friend and what is foe based on its interactions in the gut mucosa. And then that is translated to the rest of the body. This is why people with dysfunctional guts also have a lot of sinus infections and allergies and, and you know, get a lot of yeast infections and, and things like that in areas outside of the gut is because those immune cells that are circulating around gain their knowledge from the gut immune cells. And so they're attacking things they shouldn't be attacking in the periphery of the body. That happens on the skin as well. If you have a dysfunctional gut and you have a dysfunctional immune system as a result, you have an immune system in the mucosa layer of your skin that's hyperreactive. Right. So as we walk around through the world, things are landing on our skin. We come in contact with things. Your immune system is supposed to tolerate most of those things and not react adversely to it. But in people with a dysfunctional gut, the immune system has a propensity to react adversely, which means you get a lot of inflammatory responses underneath your skin. The inflammation destroys the ceramide layer. It destroys collagen. It destroys elastin. It destroys the matrix that makes the skin a true barrier, then your skin becomes leaky. And so that can lead to something called leaky skin, which dramatically ages the skin as well, right? So we have to think about the health of the skin from both the inside and the outside. The brain is a really interesting one. I'm glad you brought that up because when you think about the gut-brain axis, what's important to note is that the gut and the brain are actually two parts of the same system. From an embryonic stage, they develop from the same region of the embryo. The tissues are very similar, the blood-brain barrier, very similar to the gut lining, and they're intimately connected through the vagus nerve, through circulation, the central nervous system, which houses the brain, and the enteric nervous system, which is very complex neurological system that covers your entire digestive tract, is really like the second or the other brain, right? And so what happens in the gut has a direct effect on the brain in a few different ways. Number one is a lot of the things that our brain needs to function, like serotonin, dopamine, uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, GABA, all of these things are produced largely in the gut. 
So if your gut is dysfunctional, you're not producing all these things that the brain needs to function properly. And thereby you start ending up with sleep disorders, mood disorders, depression, anxiety, and so on. The second part is if your gut is dysfunctional, you also have a lot of inflammation. And inflammation in the gut creates inflammation in the central nervous system. Inflammation in the central nervous system is the hallmark for neurodegeneration, right? And it starts with cognitive issues like memory loss and inability to, to think about things, brain fog, sleep disorders. It leads to anxiety and all that. And then most scary, it leads to long-term neurodegeneration in the case of Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's even. Um, so those are the, the, the intimate connections is the inflammation and the, and the lack of production of the key nutrients that the brain needs. And this is why a dysfunctional gut becomes immediately a dysfunctional brain and we feel it, right? One great example of that, I'll give you a great example is IBS, right? IBS is this irritable bowel syndrome, which is this big umbrella of lots of different bowel conditions. You deal with a lot of those in your practice with SIBO, C4 patients and all that, right? A good portion of them are IBS related. Now, if you look at the IBS cohort of any age group, up to 70 to 80% of them have defined anxiety as well, right? Gut issue, IBS and anxiety go hand in hand, right? If you look at the same age cohort, that doesn't have the gut issue, less than 19% have anxiety. So just having the gut issue makes you five times more likely to also have anxiety because the two things go hand in hand. They're all gut brain issues. So it's an intimate, intimate connection. Support your brain. You have to support your gut. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Even from my perspective. So I struggled with an eating disorder, did purging mm -hmm. from top and bottom with laxatives. So my gut was a mess. And I struggled with depression and anxiety and I went through postpartum depression. And so then when I cleaned up my diet, so I think a lot of people think it's important to clean up the diet because we're getting less nutrition from these poor foods, but, and, but it's really that it's also causing more leaky gut and inflammation that then can affect our mental health. And I think people sometimes miss that. But when I then started eating an elimination diet, my gut started improving. I definitely did rounds of digestive enzymes and probiotics. And I did all of that in the beginning. And now I just do like a annual re-up, but mm -hmm. my mental health improved. So like, I don't struggle with depression. I used to have days where I couldn't get out of bed and I do everything to motivate myself the night before. And I couldn't, and now I never have days like that. Sure. Days I'm tired, maybe lower mood, but there's such a stark difference in the way I ate, the way I've taken care of my gut. I haven't taken laxative in years. And yeah. then my mental health is way more baseline of health than I've ever had before. So I could totally concur. And then our patients see the exact same thing as well. Yeah. And you didn't have to go through the rounds of SSRIs and anti-anxiety meds, meds. I tried that. It didn't work. It didn't work, right? <laughs> because it's not solving the root cause problem. The root driver, which is the inflammation from the gut and, and the lack of production of things like GABA and BDNF and all that and serotonin, that's still present no matter how much SSRIs or how much anti-anxiety meds you take. So what, what you did is really go and change the root cause driver, which is the most powerful way and the most sustainable way to have that health and wellness. No, I love it. I noticed you've been talking about creatine a little bit. My husband takes it after he works out, but it sounds like there's a lot more benefits because I just thought, oh, that will add more muscle. I know it's an amino acid, but can you share a little bit about what is so special about creatine? 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a phenomenal um, um, amino acid. Of course, we know that it's a um, inducer of of energy and and regeneration of tissue. That's how it helps people with rebuilding uh, muscle. But as it turns out, it, it can also help rebuild the lining of the gut, and it can act as a almost prebiotic for beneficial bacteria in the gut. So there are studies that show that creatine can actually increase the diversity of the gut microbiome and improve the growth of certain keystone species within the gut itself. So as it turns out, it's not just for bodybuilders. It's a, it should be kind of foundational nutrition for a lot of people, just for gut health alone, for immune health, for improving diversity of the gut microbiome. And then it always has this energy component to it, which is really important, right? So, uh, you know, I use kind of creating on and off in college. I used to be kind of part of this like powerlifting group. So I used it then. And then for a lot of my adulthood, I kind of forgot about it, right? Because I wasn't like really in the gym and lifting heavy and all that stuff. And so I would only think about it from that perspective. But then I started doing more research on all these kind of uh, unsung heroes of gut health and creatine was one of those things that kept popping up. And there's just so much research behind it on things beyond just bodybuilding and muscle building that to me, I was like, I got to educate people that this is something you should be looking at taking outside of just being, you know, someone that pumps a lot of iron and all that, right? Everyone thinks about it as from bodybuilding perspective, but it's not. It's a very important basic nutrient for our gut, for our immune system and our muscles as well. Okay. That's something interesting to try because we'll try the glutamines and we'll try all of that, but some people can't even tolerate that. I wonder if they can, because if they can tolerate meat, maybe they can tolerate some additional amounts of creatine to support. And then final question, you had this episode where you talked a lot about the importance of breast milk and all the amazing stuff in it. Can you share a little bit about the importance of breast milk? Yeah, absolutely. So breast milk is this uh, beautiful food that's been perfected by evolution over millions of years, right? And and there's a key reason why women, when they're uh, when they deliver babies, they still produce breast milk because it's so important uh, from an evolutionary adaptation perspective. Uh, a few key things that are in breast milk that are really really important. Of course, in the first few days, we're talking about the the colostrum and the immunoglobulins that come through because the baby's immune system is not at all functioning in the beginning, which means that the baby get, needs all its immune protection from mom, right? So so that in itself is really important because it, it protects the baby from this new world that now the baby's exposed to and all the new pathogens and all that that it may get exposed to. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is the transfer of microbes to the baby. This is one of the key ways in which the baby's microbiome gets inoculated. Uh, it's through the diversity of microbes that are found in the breast milk. Now, you might think like, well, how is it that microbes are in the breast milk? Well, as it turns out, it's such an important source as a probiotic, if you will, for the baby that mom's immune cells will go to her gut, grab bacteria from the gut, and actually take it up through circulation to the mammary glands wow. and, and inoculate the mammary glands, right? So we're, we're finding mom's gut bacteria in breast milk. So that's a beautiful, elegant system that the body has created to make sure that the baby gets adequate amount of microbial exposure. And then, of course, we have these beautiful oligosaccharides that are found in, in breast milk, which are these, these uh, highly complex carbohydrates, which are specifically there to feed the microbes. Baby cannot digest that for any sort of energy or food. It's there purely to feed the microbes. And there's a very complex array of oligosaccharides. In, in breast milk, there's over 200 different types of oligosaccharides. We can't mimic that in the lab and we can't mimic that in food science. 
that's nature at its best, right? Over millions of years of perfecting it. And those oligosaccharides really help to then stabilize the baby's microbiome over the first 12 months, including all the bifido and lacto, and then of course the huge diversity of microbes that are coming in through the milk itself. Um, and, and we see now, you know, like women have been fooled and families have been fooled by good marketing uh, that, you know, DHA fortified uh, formula is just as good because it's formula, it's fortified, right? And, uh, and, 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 you know, circumventing uh, feeding because of these uh, supplemental versions of formula, we now know because we have longitudinal data on this, that babies that were not breastfed and were purely formula fed have significant increased risk of metabolic syndrome, immune dysfunctions, long-term cognitive dysfunctions and all that because they didn't get the microbiome and they didn't seed the microbiome appropriately, right? So it's not just the macronutrients, it's all the microbial and, and, and micronutrients that are present in there as well. So I got sick with my first child. He was able to nurse for the first six months. And then I got on class C drugs and all this stuff. So I couldn't. And so he ended up getting on formula. My second child, I had a do over and then we just kind of got stuck breastfeeding. And so he stopped. I mean, the last few years, it was just like one time a night, but he ended up breastfeeding till the day he turned five. Yeah. Why do you think the body allows like me as the mom to nurse for so long, because I would think by age four, he's been in enough dirt and stuff, but the, if I, I could have nursed longer, we made it a decision at that point, like, okay, it's time to let it go. Yeah. So that's a phenomenal communication, right? So we, we know some of that communication is through the oxytocin system, right? So there's that bonding that mom gets with baby through that and release of oxytocin, both in the child and the mother. Now there's, there's likely signaling between um, just that latching on itself. I would guess, I don't know this for sure, but I would guess that there's an interaction between the salivary microbes in, in the baby's mouth and then the, the, the microbes found on mom's skin itself that will indicate to, to the mammary glands whether or not it needs to continue producing milk. Right. We know that microbes can communicate between people's bodies without us knowing how they're doing it. They do it through pheromones and they do it through other compounds to signal to one another's body. So I think if you have a child that needs more nursing and, and, and continues to want to do it, I think your body's going to respond in its appropriate way and provide it for you, you know, because there are, there are children that, you know, like I know my son by, by the end of one year, he was actually kind of resistant to nursing. He didn't, he didn't need it anymore. Right. He didn't want to latch on. He didn't want to do it. It wasn't providing him the comfort that it used to provide anymore. And he naturally kind of uh, went away from it. And then of course my wife stopped producing milk as a, as a response to that. Right. And so I think that's that beautiful, elegant biology. Then I think what you did is right. is just kind of following those biological cues uh, and, and not going, Oh, society says I need to stop this by a certain age. So let's stop it. Right. Uh, and you just went with your biology. And I think your child is going to benefit from it for the rest of um, uh, his life. Yeah. My younger son is leaner and I'll never know. Right. I'll never know if it's like genetics because Kevin, my husband, has some family members that are on that were heavier even when they were young. So I don't know if it's a he's more like my husband, but my older child who actually did take formula and then even went on to toddler formula that I used to fly in from Germany because I thought it was healthier, but it would still have seed oils and sugars, which I didn't know back then. He is a little, like he eats the same as my younger child that's lean, 
but he easily gains weight compared to my younger child. And it's so fascinating. And we jokingly will say, maybe we should do an FMT from my younger child to my older (laughs) because they pretty much eat the same thing. And the younger one is so much smaller, but they eat this probably the same amount of calories. It's pretty, um, and I'll never know, right? I'll never know. Was it the nursing? Was it some of the formula? Was it some of the genetics? And I'm sure it's a lot of everything, but it's both, it's very, very fascinating. Yeah. And, and, you know, your, your second child may adjust as, as, as you grow, right. And this hormone change and all that too, but it's, it's hard to know because it is so multivariable. Right. Right. So thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, where can people find you? I know you, um, you're more active on Instagram and I love it. Um, I love that you share these short bit educationals, but if you could share where people can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So reach out to me on Instagram at Karen Biome is my handle, K-I-R-A-N-B-I-O-M-E. Um, or on Facebook as well. I think if you put in Karen Krishnan, you'll find uh, my profile there readily. Um, and I try to interact with people as much as I can. As you know, you can get inundated on Instagram with lots of lots of messages. But uh, I try to support people as much as I can with pointing them in the right direction of what to look at and what to think about. Um, so that that's probably the best place to do it. And of course, Microbiome Labs has an Instagram page as well with a lot of education on it. Uh, and you can go to microbiome labs as a website.com. Um, and there's a lot of educational material on there as well. But my goal over the next couple of years is to really try to put out a lot of education on the new research that's coming out and give people little tidbits so that they can uh, empower themselves and, um, you know, and then talk to their practitioners like yourself about things they heard and, you know, things that they want to understand better. So that's about, that's my, been my whole goal. Yeah. And when I first had you on, I was still new to gut function. I mean, it was like maybe a year in, but now I've used your products for so long and we focus on a lot of the sickest, most immunocompromised. And I really just wanted to take the time and thank you because we work with even babies and these babies have eczema all over their bodies and they're super sick and the parents will open it up and put it maybe in their milk or in their water. And we notice such a significant change, especially, especially with babies by taking maybe half a capsule and their gut starts being more regulated. And so it's been a huge shift for our practice. So thank you, because if you didn't create this product, yes, maybe it doesn't work for everybody, but for the majority it does. And so it's been a godsend. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the uh, support and, and making it available to people, you know, and that's, that's really the key partnership here between us and our practitioners that we work with. So it's, uh, it's been an exciting journey and we have more things coming out. So there'll be lots of fun stuff for people to keep up with. Okay. Well, thank you so much again for your time and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Judy. Okay, guys, I hope that this interview was helpful. I hope it helps you to have a very bird's eye view of how the gut affects everything. Our gut is where we not only break down nutrients, so you need to have good gut function to even break down your nutrients. It also absorbs the nutrients. It's also where most of your immune system lies. And then finally, our gut needs to be in a good state to do all of this and protect us and absorb the nutrients to make our bodies big and strong. And so if our gut is not in good function, a lot of these things can get affected. In our practice, we've had a lot of people try fermented plants so that they didn't have to try probiotics or supplements, but we have seen so many of the carnivores get super sensitive to histamines, especially in fermented foods, because that is how they produce the bacteria. They ferment. If your gut needs support beyond digestive enzymes and hydrochloric acid, you may want to look into probiotics. We have a probiotic restart kit for people that have been on antibiotics for a long time, that have leaky gut, that have 
chronic gut issues, and it can be a game changer. Make sure to check the notes for the variety of gut supports that we recommend. And if it still does not improve, we highly recommend working with gut specialists. All right, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies, and especially your gut, because it's the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.